Well, we are back in the book of Job. Um, we, we, we've made it all the way up through chapter 2 um, at this point uh, after our... Um, and we can spend an entire lesson just on the six words that Mrs. Job has. Uh, you can see why sometimes we, we move slowly uh, in, this, uh, in this respect here. But when we, uh, today we're going to start to move out of the prologue. So you remember the way the book is set up, that we have chapters 1 and 2 that are written in prose. And then we have the second half of chapter 42 is written in prose. And everything in the middle is going to be written in poetry there. We have some, some tough questions that get raised in the prologue. Uh, we, we all wonder, it's not the, the biggest issue, but who is this Satan figure uh, that we encounter here? And, and how does the, the Satan in uh, that book relate to uh, the, the history of how Christians have thought about uh, Satan there? I find that one more just a, a, an interesting and, and you know sort of matter of curiosity type, type question. There are certain things that I just consider to be above my pay grade. Um, and so, you know, when I get to heaven, I'll go, oh, <laughs> so that's what it was. Uh, you know, I, we were discussing a, a moment ago about things that I feel entirely confident about, things like the designated hitter. You know, that one, I, I know when I get there, Jesus will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were right. There should be no DH. The nature of the Satan in the Old Testament, that one, you know, maybe I'll, I'll be instructed differently upon. Um, there are other issues, though, that are kind of tougher. Why is it that God is the one who brings Job to the Satan's attention? Have you considered my servant Job? I mean, it's the title for our entire series here, the title for Ballantine's book on this topic. It's a terrifying question. You know, it's it, it just it, the, the book of, uh, Co y'all don't call it Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes has, a, you know, a few lines in there about be, don't be too religious. It all, which is an odd line for the Bible, isn't it? <laughs> you usually don't think that half measures are what's called for there, but, you know, uh, Ecclesiastes is a, is a strange book. But it, it has a certain element to it of keep a low profile. Uh, you know, it's moderation. It's a very kind of stoic book in some respects there. Um, keep a low profile. You, you almost don't want God being the one. Have you considered my servant Jeff over here? Lord, if it's all the same. <laughs> really. <laughs> you know, surely there's someone else uh, that you might want to bring to uh, the Lord's attention there. And then probably the most difficult question of all is that God is portrayed as being lured in so easily into tormenting Job. You know, although you incited me against him for nothing is the way that the book puts it. It's part of the reason, not uh, the, the sole reason, but part of the reason why I think Job is better read as a parable than as a straight history story. Uh, as a straight history story, it's just terrifying theologically. If we think of it as a parable, and what a parable is is a thought experiment, then it, it really works quite well. It makes us kind of wrestle with these issues again and again, and what is the nature of divine justice and why do innocent people suffer and so forth. However difficult the questions might be, though, in the prologue, we can always take comfort in that legendary patience of Job, that uh, Job is presented from the very start of me three times. Just in those first two chapters, he's presented as upright, blameless, fears God, turns away from evil. It's the narrator who says this. God says it twice concerning Job. 
Job is just a model of being able to, you know, bear up in some of this difficult suffering when his family and his possessions are taken away. Uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Job handles that so well. Uh, when his own health is racked by the Satan, he says to his wife, uh, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips is the way that the narrator puts it. And so when we come to the end of the prologue, our scene is that the friends have arrived. So we have Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar who are there. And chapter 2 verse 11 puts it this way. Now when Job's three friends heard of all these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home. Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Naamatite, they met together to go and console him, uh, console and comfort him, excuse me. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept aloud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, you can see how uh, when we, we've, we're in that scene, and all of the friends are there, and they're sitting there in silence, and Job is, uh, you know, expressing, you know, through his, <clears throat> excuse me, his uh, patient endurance of all of this, why the book then comes to the conclusion that it does. If you were to, to go over to chapter 42... It says, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and his children's children four generations. And Job died old and full of days. That's a story that sort of matches that view of Job as Job the patient. That here he suffers, but he endures it. And at the end, God restores him. And he gets to see uh, four generations of his family. He dies old and, and full of days. And, and they all lived happily ever after uh, is the way that uh, our postscript might go on that. The only problem is the, the, the prologue ends in chapter 2. <laughs> and those verses that I just read were from chapter 42. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle are 39 other chapters. What other adventures does Job have in those 39 chapters there just to tell the story of Job suffers, but he's patient and God ends up restoring him and they all live happily ever after, misses an enormous chunk of the book, the vast majority of the book, as we have it today. What happens in between those two ends of the book? Well, I, I, I have in my notes uh, point number one, Job's true feelings. And what I mean by that is it may be that the words of Job that we encounter in the prologue are Job's authentic words. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Or shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? Those may be Job's, and when I say authentic, I don't mean like whether they're you know, made up or something like that. What I mean is a true characterization of how Job is feeling. But most of us who were acquainted with the stages of grief, 
would, would know that this is a particular stage of grief that Job seems to be going through. He's in a stage of denial. And it's going to take something that will get Job's true feelings on this matter to finally come to the fore. And I think what it takes is the passage of time. It's very interesting. Uh, there's, there's something about us as human beings that we are able to endure almost any burden for a certain amount of time. If you, if you know when the difficulty is going to stop, it is quite shocking what you're able to put up with, isn't it? it you can, I mean, you, you sort of look back. Michelle is right now looking back at a certain amount of walking that she did in Italy because she knew there was an end date to it. Um, that at a certain point, I, I'll give you a couple of, of ridiculous examples here. Uh, we, uh, we, when I was uh, with my sons in their Boy Scouting experience, we had a, a, a thing that we referred to as the Pelham Mile. Now, this has nothing to do with the town of Pelham uh, over there on, uh, you know, the intersection of I-65 and 119 there. What this had to do was with uh, a, a particular experience that we had when we went to the battlefield of Chickamauga, and we did what purported to be an eight-mile hike. And this eight-mile hike, which was led by a friend of mine whose name was Mark Pelham, well, it, it proved not to be eight miles, it proved to be more like 12 miles, but really the way that we experienced uh, this was basically we only have one more mile to go. We had one more mile to go for about five miles on this. And so from the time the boys were 11, uh, when they first joined Scouts, because that was when they did this, we, we always, whenever a, a hike took longer than it was really supposed to, it, be, it began to be referred to as, oh, it's just a Pelham mile that's left. It's sort of like a country mile, you know, that kind of thing, except it just, it's just one more mile at a time is basically what the Pella Mile has. And at a certain point, a look of absolute despair was on the faces of these young Boy Scouts. And it was because they had no longer the ability to see when this was going to end. If they, whenever I led a backpacking trip, I was brutally honest about how far we had left to go. We didn't have any of these, yeah, we're almost theirs. We, I told them, we've got four miles to go. And truthfully, it was far better to say you got four miles to go when you got four miles to go. They say, oh, it's just another mile. And a mile later, oh, yeah, it's, we're almost there. It's just another mile. And by the end of our Chickamauga hike, my sons wouldn't go back to Chickamauga for love nor money because it, it, it just, well, they, they kind of lost hope at a certain point because they couldn't see the end anymore. When I was a, uh, a high school teacher, um, I had uh, what, what I considered to be one of my greatest creations. It was called the Ten Commandments for Thy Beloved Professor's Classroom. And so I, I took all of the things that I didn't want my students to do, and I turned them into Ten Commandments. Some of them, they, they really ought to be published. They, they, somewhere in Washington, D.C. right now, uh, you know, the Supreme Court building, there should be somewhere. Can we work this out, Your Honor? You know, um, can we, uh, th thou shalt not arrive at thy beloved teacher's class after the ringing of the bell without an epistle explaining thine untimely arrival. 
That's gold right there, y'all. I mean, this is just, this is good stuff. Um, uh, one, that, that, it was always the voice. Oh, God bless them. Thou shalt not throw an item in thy beloved teacher's classroom, neither toward the trash can, nor toward thy neighbor, nor even unto thyself. Because you've seen them, God bless them, they're, they're throwing something up and then they drop it, then they fall out of the desk and so forth. They're ninth graders, they got two brain cells are trying to rub together to create some friction. <sighs> but it wasn't just the boys. Thou shalt not use thy beloved teacher's classroom as thy beauty salon. Neither for thyself nor for thy neighbor. I remember vividly one of the moments when this gorgeous young lady there with long, flowing, uh, you know, black hair with curls, and, and one of her, her friends behind her is brushing her hair. I could have been dancing around in the front of the classroom like a magical pixie horse, and neither, not a single boy in that classroom would have been looking at me because they were you're just too good to be true. As they're looking over at Jenny and Abby brushing one another's hair, I, that, I, whatever I had to say did not get through on that particular day. But there was something I needed. It was a, it was a kind of a catch-all. It, it was this last one, thou shalt not annoy thy beloved professor. And the reason that I had to have that one was because, God bless them, about half of the ninth graders have more energy than they need, and so they try to bleed it out in different ways. I loved it when students doodled. Doodling is quiet. What I did not like is when they would take a pen and go, ch -ch, ch -ch, ch -ch, ch -ch, just like that. I, I'm OCD on my best day, and at a certain point, you know, my eye would begin to twitch as they would do that. And some of them, because there's a certain kind of just blissful unawareness uh, about themselves, they would, they're three-ring binders. Any of you who are teachers ever had the students with the three-ring binders? It sounds like one of the gates at Fort Knox closing, and they are just completely unaware of the fact that they're doing this in the middle of the class. And finally, I would just say, thou shalt not. Do this anymore because you could put up with it for a little while, but after a certain point, you just, you just, you just can't stand it anymore. One of those kind, I'm as mad as heck and I'm not going to take it anymore kind of moments, you know, that you, we can put up with a lot, but only for a while. This is representative of a, a much larger dynamic. We can take on projects of enormous scale if you just know what the endpoint is in it. But when there's no endpoint, you can break almost anybody. Cool Hand Luke, for example. Remember when he can endure almost anything? How many eggs can one person eat? But when it's dig that hole and then fill it back in, and dig that hole and fill it back in, even Paul Newman can be broken when there's no end in sight to what's going on there. There's a story, I, I really don't know if it's apocryphal, um, but I don't have any reason to think that it is, uh, but it's a story, of, it's a terrible story of something that happened in a concentration camp, which was very similar to what you know, is going on in Cool Hand Luke there, when uh, a, a group of the Jewish prisoners were told, dig a hole here, and once they had dug it, they said, now fill that up, and they had to dig the hole on the other side, and then fill it up, and eventually people would, would commit suicide 
because it was just there was no end in sight. We can endure a great deal, but despair seems to set in when it seems like there's something that will never end. Now we as the sort of omniscient readers get to look at Job and say, well, it's been seven days. But if you're Job in the midst of it, you don't know that it's just seven days. It's like one of those moments, surely I am not the only person here who has had an illness and felt like, this is it. I am I'm going to have a terminal cold. And by terminal cold, I don't mean that I'm going to have a cold and I'm going to end up in the hospital and I'm going to die in a week. I am going to live for the next 40 years of my life with this same cold. It will never go away. It's, I've got, I, don't, I don't have the five-day flu. I have the 25-year the, the flu here. I'm never going to get well. Now, you look back at it and you go, well, okay, that lasted a week. But it doesn't feel like a week in the midst of it. It feels like it just won't ever stop here. In the context of Job's story, Job has no way of knowing whether he's going to suffer for seven days or if this is the first seven of 70 days or 700 days or the rest of his life. Job's suffering seems to be interminable. And it's this passage of time that finally, in the context of the story, breaks Job. Now, I say breaks Job it only breaks Job in the sense that it makes him finally come to grips with how Job actually feels in the story. How Job feels begins to be expressed in chapter 3. I've given you a, a translation here. About half of the translation is mine. I, I, I did an article one time for the uh, Journal for the Study of the Old Testament, and so I translated the passage for that. The other half of it is from the New Revised Standard. I didn't take the time to, to say uh, which was which in there, but so part of it's me and part of it's the NRSV. It says, uh, Job uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 1, uh, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said, a man-child is conceived. That day, let it be darkness. May God above not seek it. May light not shine upon it. May darkness and gloom claim it. May clouds settle upon it. May a blackness of day terrify it. That night, let darkness seize it. May it not join the days of the year. May it not enter the number of the months. Yes, that night, let it be barren. Let no joyful cry be heard in it. Let those who bind day curse it. Those ready to stir up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none. Let it not see the eyelids of the dawn is the way verse 9 concludes there. You can tell that what Job is doing here is he's actually cursing two different things. On the one hand, he's cursing the day of his birth, but if you read the text carefully, he's also cursing the night of his conception. So he's hitting two targets at one time here. Uh, when it comes to uh, cursing the day of his birth, he says, let the day perish on which I was born. One of the, the point of the article that I wrote was that uh, Job's curses against day and night here, they're almost too personal. And my, my argument was that uh, in Israel's background, like the other nations that were around them, day and night used to be deities. 
And so uh, if you look at Greek culture, for example, Nukes and Hemera, they're, they're actually deities that are there. Uh, you remember the story where Phoebus takes the chariot, you know, and uh, goes out and, and Zeus has to, you know, shoot the arrow or, you know, the lightning to stop him and so forth. Well, when you see that particular scene, there are the, the different deities that are there. There's, there's the spring and the summer and the winter and the fall. There are the hours and the days and so forth. So these were things that were once deities. Now, by the time Job is written, they're no longer deities. And so they're the same as for us. You know, we, not that any of us have ever really thought about, you know, like Zeus as a deity or Jupiter or something as a deity. But because they used to be a deity, you can actually refer to Jupiter or Mars or Venus and personify them again. What you're really doing is you're sort of reinvesting them with that former personality that they held. Job's attacks on day and night here, they're, they're too personal. Well, the way that he can do that is he's tapping back into that mythological past there. And so Job, he, he wants that day to perish. It's almost the idea that the days of the year are like soldiers whose turn it is to go on and, and to, to take their post and to, to do their duty for that day. And Job wants the one that corresponds to his birthday to be killed. He wants that day to die from the calendar. He, he wants his birthday to be uh, prevented from going out and doing its duty. He wants darkness to lay hold of it so that it isn't able to escape and cross that threshold and go out and do what its service was supposed to be. When it comes to the night of his birth, it says, and the night that says a man-child is conceived. Now, now think about that. How, how does one know? on that night, whether the child has been conceived. See, night is being portrayed as a deity. It's this uh, omniscient night that knows that Job has been conceived. It's not just the day of his birth, but the night of his conception. If you look at verse 7, he wants that night to be cursed. Yes, that night, let it be barren. In other words, don't ever let another child be conceived on the night that I was conceived upon. Let no joyful cry be heard in it. In other words, the joyful cry that accompanied the conception uh, is what he's talking about. I don't want lovemaking to ever happen again on that night of the calendar. No more joyful cries of passion is what he's talking about. He, he envisions this guild of dark magicians who can rouse Leviathan to curse the day. You know how like in ancient cultures, a lot of times they thought that eclipses of the, of the moon or the sun, they were when a dragon would actually consume it there. Well, that's what Leviathan is. And so he's imagining that you have these dark magicians, these witches and warlocks that can be roused to um, you know, make Leviathan do something. And so he's wanting those to be conjured up so that they will go after day and night. He wants the stars of that night to be darkened, verse 9. And look at this, uh, this incredible image there at the end of verse 9. Let it hope for light, but have none. Let it not see the eyelids of the dawn. What a great image. You know, that, that kind of, what is it uh, in... Uh, Helios rhododactylos, is that the way that it's put in uh, the, the, uh, the Odyssey or the Iliad? The, 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 the fingers of dawn as they come up and you can see the rays of light as they begin there. Let it hope for those, but never see them. Job is cursing the day of his birth, the night of his conception. But if you read the text carefully, 
He's going a step further than just picking out one night and one day and going after them. Job would undo creation if it lay within his power. There are echoes all over this chapter between Job 3 and Genesis 1. There are elements that go back and forth, whether it's the the days and the months uh, that we find here in verses 6 and 7. Remember Genesis 1, that he made the the great light and the lesser light, lights to separate the day and the night, and for signs and for seasons and for years is the way that it puts them. We have the Leviathan here in Job 3, and if you read Genesis 1 carefully, verse 21, it talks about, and God made the great sea monsters. The word there, the uh, taninim, is the same word. Sylvia, you just read my book, right, uh, with the, the sea monsters that are there. This is that same word that's used there is uh, what the Leviathan is, one of these great sea monsters. And there's one very pointed echo. Genesis, I'm sorry, uh, Job 3 has a line that says, Yehi Choshech. Yehi Choshek. Now, Matt is my one Hebrew student out there who's got this, though we've got some ministers in the, the crowd who've had to take uh, Hebrew before. Yehi is the word, let there be. I, except in Genesis 1, when we hear this, we hear Yehi or, Yehi or, let there be light. The very first thing that God does in the creation week says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it talks about what the world was like. It was unformed and unfilled with darkness everywhere. And God said, let there be light. And God separated the light from the darkness. and called the light day and the darkness he called night. It, Job says, let there be darkness. This is a pointed echo. Job would reverse creation if it were in his power. He would undo God's creation. Job piles up these darkness terms in such a way that you can't even really translate them. I I mean, I, I gave it an attempt in the translation I've given you with darkness and gloom and clouds and blacknesses of day. What the heck is blacknesses of day? Um, it's just we, we're we're scrambling for different words. No light, no shining. The wonderful author Michael Fishbane says, Job stands on the rim of the universe and invokes the annihilation of all. Job is saying, I would undo creation if I could to stop my suffering. Creation for Job is no longer a good creation. And God saw that it was good. Job looks at it and sees that it is bad, at least from his perspective at this point and would undo it. Job is calling for, Job's calling for the reversal of creation puts Job in a much more unique category than someone who's just cursing his day of his birth and so forth. In fact, Jeremiah has a prayer um, where Jeremiah curses the day of his birth. Uh, I, I, I make the argument in my article that Look, Jeremiah's my favorite prophet. He's one of my favorite characters in all of the Hebrew Bible. I, when I teach him, I weep. <laughs> I, I'm just ridiculous. I realize it. It's, it's my own fault. Um, but uh, I, Michelle and I are standing in the Sistine Chapel. And I, I, because I teach a lot of these paintings as I go through Israel's history with the students, and I'll show them to them, and I'll, I'll show this and that. 
And I'm trying to explain the difference between, look at how Isaiah is painted. Because I mean, it's just wonderful the way that, you know, I mean, Michelangelo's first gift is not painting, it's sculpture. Um, but when you see the Sistine Chapel and you, you, you see Isaiah, he, it's just, it, he doesn't look like an Israelite prophet. What he looks like is a Roman senator. He has no beard, you know, for example. And he has this look of just disdain as though he's being interrupted by someone as they're speaking to him there. He's got the book that's in his hand because he's the first of the writing prophets. He's not the first one to write, but he's, yeah, Isaiah comes first as a book that is named after a prophet there. Um, he, he, he looks wealthy and intelligent. He's this patrician kind of character who moves in the circles of kings like Isaiah does. You look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel, God bless him, he's got a twitch in his eye. He's got the, some of his students have been, you know, taking their three ring binders back and forth, I think, because he's, he's got that twitch. It, it's because he hears these voices and sees these bizarre kinds of images and so forth that are there. Um, he, you know, that each of the gospels is connected with a different figure, whether it's the lion or the eagle and so forth. Well, those all come from like one image that Ezekiel has of this strange kind of creature that's there and, and so forth. And, and so he, he looks like this, and he's got a scroll in his hand for the scroll that he's able to, he's supposed to eat. And then you look at Jeremiah. Oh, God bless him. He's, he's at the end of his ability to cry. It's Michelangelo, if you look at him. The face of Jeremiah is the face of Michelangelo. He's got his workman's boots on. He's got those sculptor's hands as he sits there past the ability to weep. You look at Rembrandt's version of Jeremiah. It's the same thing. This is someone who is he's all out of tears. He, he's, a, he's a wonderful prophet. And yet his version of cursed be the day that I was born, it, it falls short of Job's curses here. Job takes them and turns them into something cosmic to say, I, I would undo all of creation if I could. What makes Job so interesting is that Job's not the first Job. <laughs> in fact, there's a, a wonderful line in, uh, in McLeish's play, uh, JB, there's always somebody playing Job. Um, it's because the, you know, they, they've got the character to play God, they've got the character to play the Satan. Well, where are we going to find a Job? And the response is, well, there's always somebody playing Job. That shouldn't be too hard to find. There are multiple Jobs from ancient literature. You could look at, a, there's a Sumerian story called A Man and His God. He's a, he's a righteous sufferer who loses his health and his wealth and his respect, and his friends malign him. His God is indifferent to him. Listen to this line from it. My companion says not a true word to me. My friend gives the lie to my righteous word. You, my God, do not thwart him. You carry off my understanding. The wicked has conspired against me, angered you, stormed about, planned evil. How long will you leave me unguided? Well, you, could, you could slip that into the book of Job, couldn't you? It sounds so similar. There's a, an even more famous one. Uh, it's the, the title of it in Akkadian is Ludlow Bell Nemeki, which is uh, I will praise the Lord of Wisdom. That's just because of the first few words in the story. What they really uh, oftentimes will call this is just the Babylonian Job. For myself, I gave attention to supplication and prayer. To me, prayer was discretion and sacrifice my rule. Remember Job? Just in case sacrifices. The day of reverencing the God was a joy to my heart. I love to do those things. But now I called to my God, but he did not show his face. I prayed to my goddess, but she did not raise her head. 
These are characters that are the, the seemingly innocent sufferers. But what makes Job different from them is that in the Sumerian Job and in the Babylonian Job, they take their friend's advice and they say, it must be me, I repent, I'm sorry, I did it, and they're restored. Job won't do this. Job is going to remain defiant. From the patient Job of the prologue, we have hit the defiant Job of the, the, the poetic middle of the book. Job is unwilling to say, I did it. Job is going to remain defiant, and so Job is going to become a much more Promethean kind of figure. You remember the story of Prometheus, right? So Prometheus, he, he steals the fire uh, uh, from the gods and he gives it to human beings and that's what enables them to have all of their technology and success and so forth. And Zeus is furious because he's the one who is supposed to give the humans uh, fire when he wants to by casting lightning down among them. And Prometheus is condemned. Remember, he's chained to the rock where the eagle comes and eats his liver every day, but his liver grows back, and so he's there in perpetual torment. And various different deities will show up and advise him. And their advice is all the same. Submit. Tell Zeus you were wrong, and, and maybe he'll forgive you. And Prometheus just refuses. And so he continues to be chained there, continues to be tortured in perpetuity. Job, Job becomes a lot more like Prometheus in this regard. Job is not going to say, it was me, I did it. Job is going to continue to be defiant. Now, defiance is not one of the virtues that gets extolled a great deal when you look at, you know, sort of post-biblical Christian art and literature and interpretation uh, amongst the virtues of things like, you know, chastity and fortitude and patience and mercy and things like that. You really don't see defiance over is like the eighth virtue um, there. We, we don't have a whole lot of that. Uh, if you'll flip over to the back of the handout that I gave you, you can see how pretty early on, um, there were attempts that were made to sort of tone down uh, the book of Job in this regard. So I, I have the uh, Hebrew versus the LXX. And you, you know, the LXX is the Roman numeral 70. So that's what the, the abbreviation for the Septuagint is. The Septuagint is this translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek that took place in the Jewish community at Alexandria, Egypt, uh, you know, roughly, say, 200 years before the time of Jesus, okay? Um, so uh, notice, for example, some of the subtle ways that uh, the, the book of Job is, is toned down. The, the Hebrew will say in Job chapter 3, verse 20, why does he give light to one in misery? In other words, why does God give light to one in misery. Um, it, it says uh, in the Septuagint, though, in the Greek, it kind of turns that into passive. Why is light given to one in misery? It sort of separates that from God a little bit. Job chapter 9, verse 22. This Job chapter 9, which we'll deal with uh, some next week, is uh, probably the nadir of Job's experience with God. This is when he finally reaches uh, the, the, the toughest things that he'll say. He will say concerning God, it is all one. 
He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. He'll say, if it's not him, who is it? Is Job's line at that point. The Greek was somewhat uncomfortable with that. And so instead of saying God destroys the blameless and the wicked, it says anger destroys the great and the powerful. That's quite different. Job chapter 16, where Job is talking about the divine assault against him, the Hebrew says, His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and shows no mercy. He pours out my gall on the ground. He bursts upon me again and again. He rushes at me like a warrior. Some of the most powerful lines ever written by a soul in distress. Well, the, the, the Greek switches it from God doing this to Job's enemies doing this. They surrounded me with spears. They poured out my gall on the ground. They threw me down. They rushed at me powerfully. It's not God doing this to Job. It's Job's enemies doing it. Job 19, God has put me in the wrong. The, the Septuagint softens that. Oh, the Lord has troubled me. And then at the very end, this is one of the more remarkable kinds of changes there. Uh, in, uh, in Job 42, the way the Hebrew puts it is that Job is restored. His friends come to comfort him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. That's a bold line right there. It was a little bit more bold than the Septuagint liked. <laughs> and so the Septuagint changes it to they are not, uh, they're not uh, amazed or astonished at all the evil that had been done to Job. But instead, they're wondering at all those things that God has done for Job as he's been restored and his wealth is now increased and he is, uh, is, he's, he's brought back to uh, a position even greater than the one that he had before. You remember our testament of Job that we've talked about a few times? It goes even further. <laughs> it, basically, it gets rid of all of the divine speeches that are there toward the end of the book. Because you don't want this to be an argument between Job and God. This is Job wrestling with the Satan in the Testament of Job. Even the New Testament. Now, it's, it's too small of a data set for us to really draw any big conclusions here. But Job is only referred to one time. Uh, and that's in the book of James, one of my favorite New Testament books. But you remember the virtue that's there. You remember the patience of Job. Job isn't being celebrated for his defiance. Job is being celebrated for his patience. The defiant Job essentially disappears in later Christianity. If it is there, it is certainly not defiance against God. Job's defiance becomes defiance against the Satan, you remember, as Job becomes the athlete of the church. He is the one who is the warrior who's fighting against the Satan. Um, he's not going to be fighting against God. Job, well, the Job from the biblical story sort of recedes out of view in some respects. This is not the only place that this happens. We, at a certain point, when we are defending our religion, we, we tend to, to sort of, you know, not draw out the toughest parts of our story. If, if I'm talking to one of my students who's struggling in his faith or is interested in the faith, I, I don't usually like bring up the story of the rape of the concubine of Gibeah as the first part of Scripture that I would suggest that you work through. Uh, you know, I, let's look at John. You know, uh, you know, I'm the good shepherd, those kinds of things. We, we all tend to do that uh, to some degree. Um, I, uh, if I'm telling the story of Auburn football, I'm, 
I'm much more likely to talk about Bo over the top or Lawyer Tillman going around here or go crazy Cadillac than I am to talk about, you know, keep it, keep it down home, cuz, I, th I think was the way that uh, Pat Dye put the line when he gave the player some money to go to a, a funeral back home and so forth. We're all selective to some degree in the way that we do these things there. I, I'm, I, I'm, what's the word? Impressed falls short, astonished at how bold the scriptures themselves are willing to be in terms of airing the dirty laundry of their characters. Who would come up with a story like David? David's closets have closets with skeletons in them. And yet it's perfectly willing to open those doors and say, look what he did and look what the result was. There are very few perfect characters in the scriptures Job is portrayed here in his defiance, and yet it's only a kind of semi-defiance. See, the, flip back to the other side of your handout. We read verses 1 through 9. We, we looked at Job's curse against the day of his birth, his curse against the night of his conception, and boy, does that part of the story end in a profound way. Why is it that Job curses the day of his birth and the night of his conception? Verse 10, because it did not close the doors of my womb and hide trouble from my eyes. Job curses them because they let him be born. Wow, that's quite a line. Job curses day and night because they let him be born. But it's the next word that's so fascinating. Why? Why did I not die from the womb? With that word why, the genre of chapter 3 changes. Verses 1 through 10 are curse. Verses 11 through the end of the chapter our lament. See, Job can't be easily put into one particular box. Job is not just this complacent, oh, a Babylonian Job, I did it, it was me, even though he knows that it wasn't. Just stop picking on me. And Job can't easily be put into the category of Prometheus, who just says, I'll just defy and continue to defy. Job goes a different direction. Instead of cursing God, he curses day and night. But if he's not going to curse God, what is he going to do with God? He's going to lament to God. Job can't be pinned down. He doesn't just curse. He then turns into a quite biblical direction and laments. He cries out to God and says, God, I don't understand. Why? Did I not die from the womb, come forth from the belly and perish? Why did knees receive me? Why breasts that I should suck? For now, I would be lying down and quiet. I would be asleep. Then there would be rest for me. See, this is written at a point where they don't have that fully uh, developed notion of the afterlife yet. And so Job imagines that if he were just to die, it would really would be this rest in peace kind of notion I would just be asleep. 
with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuild ruins for themselves, or with princes who have gold who fill their houses with silver. Why wasn't I just buried like a stillborn child, like an infant that never sees the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, there the weary are at rest, there the prisoners are at ease together, they do not hear the voice of their taskmasters. The small and the great are there. The slaves are free from their masters. God, if this is what you had in mind for me, why didn't you just kill me when I was a child? Before I knew what I was going to face, and I would just be asleep. It's a lament. It's a bold lament. But it is a lament. Why does God give light to the one who is miserable and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but do not find it and dig for it more than for hidden treasures? I, I know I've told you this before, but uh, my, my grandmother died quite terribly from Alzheimer's. And my grandfather, who had, I don't know, a dozen heart attacks or something like that. Uh, it was, it's probably closer to five, but still. I mean, he, he had a, like a you know, punch card, get one free kind of thing at the hospital. Um, he had several strokes and so forth, and, and yet outlived my grandmother by six or seven years. It was terrible. We loved him. Oh, I love my grandmother. I miss him all the time. But... For the last several years of his life, he wandered around his house saying, why am I still here? Everything I'm going to do in my life, I've done. Why am I still here? Those who long for death but do not find it, dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice to exultation and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to one who can't see the way, whom God has fenced in? My sighing comes like my bread. My groanings are poured out like water. Truly, the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes." With these incredible words, Job is going to launch the rest of the book. He's going to back his friends and God into a corner. Because if he had, if he had just cursed God, then the Satan would win the bet. The story is over, but he won't. He curses day and night instead. And then he turns to this lament, this lament that both at the same time protests his innocence and protest his suffering and says, God, I don't understand why this is happening. The friends seem to have liked it a great deal when Job was quiet. They are not going to like it one little bit when Job finally opens his mouth. And so for the next 38 chapters of the book, what we will have is this dialogue that goes back and forth with the friends saying, you ought to shut up. And Job saying, I will not. And that's what really motivates this book.